0: Hey there, it's Ashley Stahl here, counterterrorism professional turned career and business coach. And I am here for those moments when you look in the mirror and you realize it's time to make some sort of radical change or U-turn in your life so that you can stop operating on cruise control and start living your life on purpose. So join me here on the U-turn podcast every single week where you're going to be hearing from inspiring, insightful guests, be it CEOs, spiritual leaders, love experts, or of course, yours truly so that you can Become your very best self without having to take life so seriously. And don't forget if you head on over to U-Turn Podcast. Dot com. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com. You're going to get access to show notes, which have books and resources mentioned by our guests, as well as access to one of my four free e-courses over at U-TurnPodcast.com. Whether you want to land a new job you love, get clarity on the best career path for you, launch that dream business, or deepen your romantic relationships. Whew, okay, enough about me. Let's get this party started with this week's guest. All right, friends, this week we're bringing on Carter Cass, the former CEO of Walmart.com, and he also took an incredible leadership role at Blue Nile Diamonds prior to that. But he's also just an incredible friend to me and somebody that really inspires me and a recent author for the book, The Right and Wrong Stuff, which is just such a go-to for your career. Uh, join us now where we enter into a conversation where I just ask Carter, what makes a great manager? What are the top three tips and how do you derail at work? These are the topics of this week's episode. I can't wait for you to eat it up and take it to work with you this
1: week. There could be all these other areas, you know, creativity and analytical skills and all, you know, building teams. The three things that I found over and over in the research was taking the initiative, building strong relationships with people you work with, and having that drive for completion.
0: Incredible. And what would you say you know, with these three things, one thing that stood out for me was the drive for completion, because I think a lot of people, they are trying to figure out how do I get more motivated? You know, how do I reach within myself and be more motivated for those results? You know, and I'm sure that you're a great person to ask this. How do you think an employee can find more motivation?
1: Well, staying fresh, how do you stay fresh? Um, how do you continue to make sure you don't get in a rut with that which you do? So you continue to challenge yourself and keep your learning. I think, you know, generally when we are learning curve is up, we are motivated when we're learning new tools to, you know, ways of doing things, gaining new knowledge, learning new skills, you know, going to a different country, um, absorbing a new culture, uh, getting rotated Onto a new product or a new service, so trying to stay fresh by keeping your learning curve up. I usually say to people, you want to, especially I'd say uh if you're in your 20s or 30s, you want to be in a job where your learning to leverage ratio, you know, is probably 70-30 or at least 60-40, mm-hmm. 60 or 70 percent time you're learning, and 30 to 40 percent of the time you're leveraging what you already know. If you're in a job and you're 30, 35 and your ratio of learning to leverage is 30-70, it would worry me because that means 70% of the time you're sort of applying what you know, but you aren't learning new skills. So you want to keep your learning curve up. That's one important thing. Mm. And, Another, go ahead, Nashua. Oh, no,
0: please talk to me. I'm taking, taking notes in my mind. Go ahead.
1: The, the other thing that I found that was really interesting, I, I, I got this research by a combination of talking to Dan Pink a lot about drive
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and also reading a lot of the research on uh, motives, some of it by a guy named David McClellan back in the 60s and 70s at Harvard, understanding what inherently motivates you is really, really important. And McClellan says that you know, after doing all this research, he found that we have humans have three social motives that are dominant the achievement motive you know to 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 uh, achieve and do well and keep score and where your work is defined by your ability to do things yourself then the um uh, affiliation motive uh, your desire for um friends and to have close relationships with the people with whom you work to be part of a team and then the third one he said is the power motive which is yeah, your, your, in, uh, your, your enjoyment of influencing others and your drive for status and recognition and, you know, winning arguments. So you can look at different jobs and different jobs emphasize these three different motives differently. So I went to this company that is, examines motives at the hate group. And I said, is there, are there different profiles for different positions? Like if you're a, uh, entrepreneur, do you have a different profile of a motive structure than if you're a you know a corporate executive? And they said, oh yeah, it's very different. If you're an entrepreneur, you have a high drive for achievement. You have a fairly high drive for affiliation hmm. and you have a kind of a, a medium drive for power. Hmm. If you're a corporate officer, the general profile we see of those folks is less high in achievement, but still pretty high, lower, much lower on affiliation, the need for you know affiliation Mm -hmm. and a very high drive for power Mm. and so looking at yourself you know what if you're thinking i'm not i don't get energy out of this job right now maybe it's because what motivates you is not doesn't match up well with the requirements of that job Mm -hmm. so for example i was a a ceo of a multi-billion dollar division of walmart And my power drive is very low. I I have a very high achievement drive and a high affiliation drive, but my power motive score was like 7th percentile, not 70th, 7th. Wow. And this woman that evaluated me said, how are you a corporate CEO when you have this low power drive? And I said, you know, I I felt like I was in the wrong job.
0: Mm. I
1: did. It didn't feel like me to be in that job. So much of that job was about cajoling and tried to – influence and you know arm twisting and I, I wanted to be back building software with a small group of people mm. so understanding motives is a huge huge area and dan pink would add you know to those three motives i mentioned he would say don't forget autonomy
2: mm-hmm. and,
1: and purpose that, that a, a really major motive is autonomy the desire to have discretion over that which you do
0: yes and
1: another big driver is purpose to, to work on something that's important to you, that you believe in, you know, whether it's, you know, education or clean tech or, you know, whatever.
0: And what was the test called that you took to get these numbers?
1: The Hey Group picture story exercise.
0: Incredible. Okay. We'll and make sure you, you literally,
1: that. there's like eight pictures and you literally write down a story of what you think is happening in these ambiguous pictures. And then a social psychologist circles words and looks for patterns and then assesses what your motive profile is from doing that. There's also for your listeners, actually, there's a good book that I like uh, by uh, by a group from Gallup um, called What Motivates Me. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of the author's names was Elton, E-L-T-O-N. And there is a test in there you can take to take a look at your own motive profile that I think is really
0: good. Great, that's so helpful. Isn't it amazing how much we often focus on our interests and our passions, but we are not looking at what motivates us to be anywhere in the first place? What a great point.
1: It really is interesting because you know your values. Mm-hmm. You you can you can you can enunciate your values. You know, I value my family, or I value you know working out and staying fit, or whatever. But if I ask somebody, well, you know, what motivates you? What draw? Where do you get energy? What drives you? People have a harder time with it than, than than enunciating what they value, and so this is not as easy, I think, for a lot of people as it sounds to to pinpoint their motives. So you have to think about it a while, and then ask yourself if I'm not excited about work right now, maybe it's because I'm in the wrong job that doesn't and the job doesn't match my motive structure.
0: Yes. And this actually leads me to wanting to ask you, you know, you talked about people, talented people, and there's so many of them. And I think a lot of the times when somebody's in the wrong job, they make meaning out of it in their head that there's something wrong with them, or that they're not a top performer, or that they're not smart. And I love when when talking to you really referencing everybody's talented in some way. So why do you think a talented person derails?
1: Yeah, there I found five reasons that they derail. Mm-hmm. And the first one has to do with interpersonal issues. Mm-hmm. And generally, it's around um, either ego drive, making you, um, you know, you're overly ambitious, uh, you don't listen well, and uh, uh, or you're or you're not empathetic. Mm-hmm. And because of that people are alienated and they don't want to work with you so the first character i use to describe this trait is captain fantastic this mm-hmm. this person who's you know sharp elbows you and mansplains to you and you know is a is 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 has an unbridled ego and dismal listening skills so that's the first one and that and so you know it isn't only Captain Fantastic being, you know, this big ego, you, you could also be a Captain Fantastic under pressure or under stress. Some character trait can pop out that could actually hurt your effectiveness. Mm. So, you know, that is the biggest, that is the biggest reason people derail is interpersonal issues generally driven by not seeking to understand the other person, Got it. not, not being empathetic. Um, that's the first one. The second one is often happens early in a career and that's just not learning to be a good manager. Not learning that just because you're a great individual contributor and you can, you know, make a spreadsheet, you know, smoke or do whatever mm-hmm. and then, and then you get promoted into a managerial job and you still try to do all the work yourself. Yeah. And you micromanage, you overmanage. And so this, this, one of the psychologists from Harvard, Linda Hill said, Getting promoted into management is like a transformation of identity. You literally have to let go of being a doer and embrace being a coach. And that's hard for people that are really good at doing stuff. Mm. So that's the second reason.
0: And what do you think makes an amazing manager just while we're on this topic? Not to derail Um, you. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah, don't know. Oh, that's that's a that's a great question. Um, I think the most important thing that makes a good manager is being empathetic and trying to understand what the other person is aspiring to so you can be effective in a, building a plan, a development plan that will help them get to where they want to go. so they know that you you have their best intentions in mind. And secondly, being a good listener, So you understand where they're coming from. And then third, being a good good communicator so they understand what's expected of them in the job. So it's all interpersonal stuff, being listening well, showing empathy and understanding, and then communicating clearly based on um, listening to them and making sure they understand what's expected of them.
0: Great. Okay. That's helpful. So
1: it's it's the basics, you know, it's really the basics.
0: Isn't it interesting? Also, I was talking to Peter Diamandis, the futurist, and he was saying, I asked him, I said, what do people need in the workforce of tomorrow with robots taking over a percentage of jobs? And he affirmed a lot of this. He said, what people really need is soft skills, communication skills, empathy. So, I mean, this is just appearing in so many of my conversations. It's only affirming what you're saying. Um, Uh okay. So back to the five ways, sorry, the five ways talented people derail.
1: So the captain fantastic. Now you have solo flyer, which is the person who lacks, you know, is, is, has a difficult time managing and hasn't reached that realization that now they are the coach and they're not the player anymore. The third one is about mid career. This hurts you. This is version one. I call this person version 1.0. This is somebody who's gotten in a rut. They're They've gotten complacent and they've stopped learning. And, you know, with new technologies coming along every at the drop of a, you know, just every second, we have to stay in this sort of discovery learner's mindset. This person hasn't and they become a dinosaur. They 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 kind of have an attitude of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And, you know, that is not going to work in today's environment. So they are not adaptable to changing. Circumstances.
0: Mm, I can
1: see that. So, you know, Corn Ferry, uh, you know, headhunting firm and and research firm said that the biggest indicator of someone reaching a senior level position is learning agility. Mm-hmm. The ability to, you know, be curious, be open-minded, um, constantly trying new things and incorporating them into what you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's the third one. The fourth one's an interesting one. Um, I call this one the one trick pony. This is somebody who is really good in a specific area, but hasn't broadened their skill set. And so they sort of top out. So, you know, you might have a controller who's good as an accountant. But when she asks to be, when she wants to be a, a CFO, she can't reach a CFO position because she doesn't have any experience with, you know, capital asset management or forecasting or, you know, um, working with the business units on improving their operational efficiency. She only knows accounting. Mm. And so it's a tricky one because you definitely want to specialize so that you have a signature skill. But if you hang on to your signature skill and don't broaden, at some point it will limit your career progress.
0: Mm, good to, okay, incredible. And what is the fifth one?
1: The fifth one is the whirling dervish. Oh. And, and this is somebody who their eyes are bigger than their stomachs. Okay. They are say yes. They're creative. They say yes to everything. They get excited. And they get overwhelmed and they don't plan well enough, they aren't organized well enough, they overcommit and they underdeliver. And what's interesting, Ashley, is I have on my website, if you go to my website, it's Cartercast.com, I think it's backslash um uh derailment, there is a uh, assessment you can take to see which one of these five you you fit into, oh, if any.
0: We'll make sure to post that too. Great.
1: Okay. And the one that people are self-identifying with the most by far is the whirling dervish. And my theory is this is spiking much more than I would have thought right now. I I think it's because we all feel so overwhelmed in the, you know, in the digital age we live in. Mm. I think we're just getting tweets and texts and emails. And, you know, I think we all just feel like we can't stay on top of things now.
0: How interesting. And you know, what what this makes me think about is when you were talking about, high achieving and successful people in the top 10% of 360 assessments. And you were saying that, you know, ideally 70% of the time they're learning something new, whereas 30% of the time they're using what they know. That was, that was your numbers on that, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That I, you want to keep your especially Actually, when you're young, you want that ratio of learn to leverage to be, you know, 65, 35 at my age, I'm in my mid fifties, you know, it's probably closer to 60, 40 leverage learn, but I don't want it to get any lower than 40%. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, I gotta stay fresh. But how do you keep yourself from becoming the whirling dervish, right? Where you're, you're a, cause part of being a yes person is saying yes to things. Maybe you haven't mastered yet. And that's part of the growth. So how do you recommend somebody kind of make some big, say some big yeses in their career, but not overstep that line where yeah. they're suddenly swapped and yeah. not able to keep up?
1: Well, that's a really good question. I, <laughs> Cause you're right. You do want to stay fresh. And, and I try to set aside, I call it head. I always talk about headroom. I try to make sure that I'm not running flat out at a hundred percent. Like, you know, think of it like the capacity on a plant line. Mm-hmm. If it's running at full capacity all the time, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to retool it. Things break down. I want a little bit of headroom so I can have a certain amount of time that I'm exploring. I'm reading. I'm meeting with people. I'm working. I'm going to conferences. And if I'm running at hundred percent capacity, just, just executing initiative after initiative, the chances are I'm going to get stale. I'm going to get stale in my brain. I'm not going to be um, up to date on what's going on in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So I like to have a certain amount of headroom built into my calendar where I block out time that I'm going to be out in the market, networking, meeting with entrepreneurs, meeting with other venture capitalists, going to conferences and new technologies. And I build that into my calendar to make sure I stay fresh.
0: Great. And what about, what about, you know, this dance of, okay, what about when you're given something and you think to yourself, you know what, I think that this might not be a yes for me. How does how does somebody speak up so that they can honor their results and keep doing well for their employer yeah. while also still being, you know, a yes person?
1: Yeah, this is a really good one. I've thought about this a lot because I am a pleaser. Yeah. And so one of my um, derailers is the whirling dervish because I overcommit and so, you know, my wife jokes at me, Ashley, she's like, look, Carter, I want you to start off. And the first thing when you're told, asked to do something, I want you to say, let me take that under consideration <laughs>
2: <Great> <laughs> instead of steps. saying,
1: yes, I will take that under. So first thing is you want to buy yourself a little time to think and see if you can or want to do this. Um, I read a book called The Power of a Positive No by William Urey. He's the guy that wrote Getting to Yes, you know, Amazing. the book on negotiations. And he said... And I met him at a TED event, a TEDx event one time in Chicago. And I said, oh, I love that book. And he said, you know, I loved writing that book. The main message I got out of getting uh, the power of a positive no is remember when you're saying no to somebody that you're saying yes to something else that's important to you to give you. Courage. You're saying yes to seeing your kids. You're saying yes to getting a workout in. You're you're saying yes to to making sure your heart healthy. You're making sure you're saying yes to your friends, you know, to see a friend. So that's the first thing. The second thing is when you're going to say no. This is something I stole from Adam Grant in give and take. When you say no, do a five minute, turn it into a, a no into a five minute favor. So I'll give you I'll give an example. I I was asked to go speak in San Francisco to a bunch of Kellogg prospects. And I don't have time right now to fly to San Francisco and do this because I'm in in the middle of, you know, this book tour and all this. So I said to the admissions director, I can't do it. But if you give me a list of two or three high potential Kellogg prospects who are entrepreneurial, I'll call them and I'll sell them on Kellogg. So that instead of a two day trip to San Francisco, I have a two hour, you know, two phone calls or three phone calls to make. Mm-hmm. So that's an elegant, you know, it's kind of a great, it's a graceful way of saying no, no, by doing a five minute favor.
0: A no, but I can do this. This is what I Yeah, want. like. I can't meet with
1: this person, but here's a recommendation for you of someone to talk to.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Mm hmm.
1: The other thing on the whirling dervishes is is if you watch a whirling dervish in action, often they're working in response mode. They are constantly reacting to a text that comes in, to an email that comes over the transom, and they stop what they're doing and they attend to it. So they're constantly in a response mode versus being in a proactive mode. So I would say to the whirling dervish, you know, one, block out the time when you're most productive in the day and turn all your digital stuff off and just Work, go someplace quiet and work, then go back to your emails and set aside a half an hour, an hour to respond to emails and texts, then go back to a work mode again, block out three hours where you're going to have meetings, then go back to work mode. So chunk, I I say chunk out your days and work in blocks of time. So you aren't constantly in a state of um, going from here to there and not ever digging in in any one area.
0: That's great. Great productivity. I love the productivity focus. I think a lot of people struggle with that.
1: What is the, another good book for that one? Yeah, Ashley, I was literally going to
0: ask that you're a mind reader Carter.
1: Oh, great. (laughs) David Allen. David Allen is like the guru of productivity and he's written some great books. One of them is getting things done. And he just talks about how you organize and plan for your, you know, your day and how you prioritize work. And I, um, I read that one too.
0: You know, I, had an, I have an employee, um, you know, over here in one of my businesses, and I could tell that she's the whirling dervish because she's a really bright woman and she has taken on a ton. And she never, she never spoke up to me and said, hey, you're giving me too much, but I started to feel it. And so I just kind of lightened up. Uh, but what would, what would advice would you give for somebody like her who I can tell she wanted to be able to say something to me? Like I'm giving her too much to do, but couldn't find the words. Is there a way or an official approach that somebody can take in discussing it with their manager? uh, I think so.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I'll, I'll tell you that this is the same thing that I did with my board when I was, um, Yeah, the board's saying at a a venture startup board, the venture capitalists are always like, we need you to do, you need, you should be doing this. You should be doing that. What about this? What about that? Yeah. And of course you've got like whatever five people in your startup or 10, Mm -hmm. you know? And so what I used to do is I used to put a list together on like two sides with a line between them. So like one side, left side, right side. And on the left side, I'd write the activities I was working on and he even prioritized those. So the first one was the most important, and the eighth one was the least important. But these are the things I'm working on. And then on the right side, I'd list the things were being asked of me that were new coming in over the transom. And I would sit down with the venture capitalists or your boss, doesn't matter. And you say, right now, here's the eight things I'm working on. And I draw a little line at five and say, these are the ones I'm getting these, I've done these three are on, you know, they aren't in action yet. They're on the deck.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now over here on the other side of the other things that I'm being asked to do, would you help me prioritize this list?
0: What an incredible conversation. How well done. I can only imagine how many people are going to hear this and start writing down the things they're doing right now and the things that have been asked about them. Okay. And then you
1: have that you engage your boss in a conversation about priority. So you say, he might look at that list of the eight. And he might say, geez, number seven is super important, Ashley. That should be up at the top. He said, okay, all right. What about this stuff on the right? Well, I agree. Those ones on the left are the most important ones. So let's hold off on those ones on the right until you get more, you know, you get through some of this list on the left. You Mm -hmm. say, okay. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you know, on a fairly regular basis to set and reset and reset and reset priorities, then you don't run into this situation where your boss says, Why aren't you getting this stuff done? And you end up saying, you know, there's just too much to do. I'm overwhelmed. Why didn't you tell me that? You engage them to be part of the solution.
0: Mm, Incredible. And, you know, it's funny. I think that when you think about communication, I had a a boss when I worked in counterterrorism and he kind of would communicate. We were close enough where I could give him the feedback, but he would communicate kind of like a drive-by shooting where he kind of just, <laughs> come, you know, he just, he'd, he'd fly by and be like, get this done. And then he was like off in the wind through which he came, you know? And <laughs> I just remember thinking I'm such a different communicator. I'm a lot more of a collaborative communicator where I come to somebody and I'm not just giving them a piece of information and subconsciously saying, go do what you want with it. What I'm really doing is saying, I want to talk to you. So let's collaborate about this conversation and see where we can go with it. And I love what you're doing because what you're creating is a situation that the employee has where they might have too much on their plate. They don't know how to do it. And they go to their boss. And instead of, you know, being in blame, being in complaint, being in a negative space, they're saying, I want to be productive. I want to serve the company. I want to be results focused. So here's what I'm working on. Here's what's been asked of me. Help me out. Uh, What a beautiful way! And thank you so much for the suggestion. I know a lot of people are going to use that. Oh, great. Good. And what do you think? You know, people can do other than learning and saying yes more. And I know you've listed so many different things. I'm even taking notes as you speak. But what do you think somebody can do to keep themselves from really derailing? If there's one key thing,
1: the most important thing I learned in doing this research and writing this book is. The people that have low self-awareness derail six times more frequently than people that have accurate self-awareness. Now, what do I mean when I say self-awareness? Internal self-awareness, so your understanding of your own strengths, weaknesses, vulnerabilities, motives, and then there's external self-awareness, your accuracy in the way you interpret how others see you. Hmm. So there's both aspects. So there's this Harper Business Review article that came out two weeks ago. It was this meta study of self awareness. I think her name is Uric, E E U R I C
0: H. Great. And
1: she and she um, she said after looking at all this data, thousands and thousands and thousands of people, ten to fifteen percent of people have high self awareness. Wow. That, that,
0: that's it. That's wow. it. We're all and, just a bunch of minions running around chasing yeah. each other.
1: <laughs> but high performers that don't derail have higher self-awareness. Yes. They, if they say, like in a 360 feedback, if they say there are two in analytical skills on a scale of one to five, five being great, one being terrible. If they say there are two, the chances are those who are rating them, they're their boss, their peers, and their subordinates are going to say they're a two, two. So they're accurate. Mm-hmm. If they say they're a five on creativity or creative thinking, creative problem solving, chances are their peers, their subordinate, their boss is going to say they're a five. So they're accurate. Their self, their, their self assessment, their ability to understand their strengths and weaknesses and vulnerabilities is high. So they put themselves in the right positions to succeed.
0: Incredible. And
1: so what we got to do to avoid derailment, all of us, me, everybody is to constantly make sure our mental map is accurate in terms of how we view our strengths, weaknesses, vulnerabilities. So we're like, we know what we're strong in. We try to put ourselves in positions to work on those, to, to work in environments and on jobs that cater to our natural strengths. Where we're weak, we try to work in environments that don't cater to our weaknesses and where we're vulnerable. Maybe you have a temper or maybe you are a skeptic or maybe you are um, overly compliant. You are aware of some of these personal areas of vulnerability and so you try to self-monitor so they don't hurt you. So self-awareness is the key that unlocks the door in all of the research I did and taking the time to you know journal, talk to people that know you well, ask them what they see when they see you. What am I, you know, my friend, Brad, what do you think I'm, what do you think I'm really proficient in? What areas do you think I really need to improve? What do I do? What do I do at work that irritates other people? When you see them sort of reacting negatively, ask people you care about that are honest with you. And they, cause they see us more clearly a lot of times than we see ourselves. So, that sort of ability to be reflective. Mm.
0: And how do you encourage, you know, honest feedback, AKA it could be called criticism, you know, constructive yeah. criticism. How do you encourage it and how do you take it well in the yeah. workplace?
1: Well, you know, what's interesting. People have negative, a really negative reaction to f- bad feedback yeah. when the person providing it uh, only gives them negative feedback. If you, if think about somebody you've managed, Ashley, if you've managed somebody and you care about them, You've, you've worked on them with a personal development plan. You give them a constant flow of feedback. Then the one pe- then you give them a piece of negative feedback. And that's just one of many pieces of feedback they get. So they're, and, but they realize that you, they trust you and realize that you're well-intended. You have their best interest at heart. And so they take the negative feedback at heart, you know, they take it in stride. Yeah. But if the only time you come up to somebody is to be critical of them in a negative way, they're not going to react very well. So one thing is make sure that you give them steady feedback so that the negative stuff is in the context of much more feedback that you give them. The other one is this little trick I learned from a friend. He says he calls it the world's simplest feedback model right after the event. Maybe it's after a big meeting or it's after a presentation. You pull your subordinate aside the minute it's done because you, you can't give feedback back a year later or six months later. You know, it doesn't do any good. You have to do it right after the event. You, right afterwards, you just get in the habit of saying, hey, Ashley, tell me one thing that you think went well in that meeting you led. And then you shut up and listen. And then when they're done talking, you say, here's one thing I think that went well. So that builds confidence. Then you say, Ashley, what's one thing you think you could have done differently in that meeting, in that leading that meeting? And then you're quiet. And then when they're done talking, you say, here's one thing I think you could have done differently. And then you're done. Great. One thing. Well, one thing. Well, one thing differently, one thing differently. And if you get in the habit of doing that on a regular basis, people get a steady stream of feedback and they improve.
0: And it also creates a sense of security, right? If you're encouraging them to be honest with what they could have done better, you're opening the door for them to be more vulnerable with you.
1: And, and a lot of times people are self-aware or they can say, oh, I didn't do that well. So they, 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 they self-identify what, you know, what they could have worked on and could have done better. But the, that process is like so simple, but how many times, you know, do I, in the research, how many times I can't tell you, I heard people say, well, the only time I got feedback was during the performance time period during, during a performance review.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: it's like you get feedback one time a year. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, how are you going to improve when you're getting feedback one time a year?
0: Yeah, especially because millennials, apparently, you know, I've read all the research and it indicates that we want feedback all the time.
1: Yeah. And if I do it to you like that, tell me one thing you think went well, and then I'll tell you one thing that I think went well. That builds confidence and it shows sort of, you know, it's a positive approach. What's one thing you could have done differently? I tell you one thing you could have done differently. That builds skill.
0: And it's all So you build confidence,
1: then you build skill, and then you're done. You don't say – Sit down. I'm going to tell you 10 things that went wrong there. Because people can't remember that.
0: Yeah, no. You, get,
1: you, you focus on one thing at a time.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It kind of reminds me of even relationships. I think that romantic partners, they'll get in a tiff. And I've heard so many friends of mine saying something like they went on and on. And then their boyfriend said something like, Can you just tell me the one thing I need to fix? Like you just said a lot of stuff. <laughs> a lot of the times the workforce is like love. So there we have
1: it. Well, and one of my friends said, um, uh, What you do is you put your arm around them first, then you give them a little kidney punch. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So start off with something, start off with something positive Mm -hmm. and then talk about something that could have been done better, but you don't lead with the, you know, you don't lead with the pain.
0: Well, and I'm noticing your language too. I mean, you could easily say something like, what do you think you did wrong? Or what don't you think you did well? But instead you said, what could you do better? And I think that that's such a non-confrontational encouragement. Or even
1: different, even different. What could you have done differently? Yeah. You know, the, the the point is they're going to be self-critical when you say it. You don't have to say wrong yeah. or you screwed up. You just say, what, what would you have done differently now that you've done it once? Yeah. That's a really innocuous way of asking it.
0: Well, and I, I, don't, I want to ask you just more of a simple question, which is when people are listening, and I know there's so many that will, and there's so many gems that you've shared, but and from Blue Nile, I'm still caught in the diamond thing. <laughs> but what is <laughs> one simple way that you think people can take action and be a better performer today, this week.
1: I think the best thing we can do is be reflective. The minute we're done with something, before running off to the next thing, sit down, open up your journal and 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 say to yourself, Okay, I just led this important meeting. What are some things that I did well in that meeting that I want to keep doing? It's called start, stop, continue. We used to do that exercise. What do I want to start doing that I did that I'm not doing? What do I want to stop doing? And what do I want to continue doing? And if you get into a a reflective habit of once you're done with something, you're reflective and you think about what did I do well? What could I have done better? What do I want to continue doing? And you note it. I What's interesting is I think we forget so much of what we've learned. And I, I feel like it's important for me anyway to document it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether it's an Evernote or, you know, whatever software you use, or maybe it's just an old-fashioned leather-bound journal. But once you realize something and you learn it or you want to ponder it, I'd like to get it down because I often when I'm writing it down, I learn by what I'm writing. You know, like the creative process makes me feel like I'm learning just by documenting and and, and kind of ruminating on how I performed. So I think if I'd say one thing, it's be reflective. Take the time to be reflective.
0: Mm. You know, it's interesting, actually, on that note. One of the things I've learned in personal development and in my master's in spiritual psychology was that, uh, one really good journaling tool is free form writing. You know, just writing from whatever is present in you. So we all have different aspects of ourselves, whether it's anxiety or happiness or anger or whatever we feel is present. And what I've found with a lot of people I've coached is that when they write from a certain aspect of themselves, perhaps it's, um, anxiety. I tell them for 30 days, just write free form from the voice of anxiety. Just write in your journal. Like, what is it having to say? And usually after a few, you know, five to 10 minutes, there are things on the page that they didn't even know they believed that they didn't even know was inside of them. So I love what you're saying about being reflective, but also I was just just wanted to offer taking it even another step of being able to look at the aspects of yourself that are holding you back and being able to realize the power of writing beyond just the awareness. There's so much in your awareness that you don't even know is there until you write it down. So amazing. amazing I agree.
1: There's this creative process in doing it that you unlock areas of your brain that you didn't even know existed by writing things down. Yeah. And I agree with you on anxiety as an anxiety sufferer. Yeah. I've learned that shining a lot. The best thing to do to with free form anxiety is to pin it down. And the best way to pin it down is to shine a light on it. And the best way I know to shine a light on it is to write.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And so many people, I think they don't, you know, we suffer because we let anxiety drive the car or whatever it is that's holding us back versus kind of putting it in the passenger scene. I think writing it down is a way of kind of reassigning its place in your mind. Wonderful. And Another question I'm curious that somebody had submitted when I said I was interviewing you was, what is one fear that you still haven't been able to overcome, and how are you working with it?
1: Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think uh, the, the the biggest one of the bigger fears I have that hurts me in business is I've I've had a long term fear of flying. Mm. And I got in a flight when I was young and we got hit by lightning and it actually blew a hole in the back of the plane. Oh my gosh. And we had to do an emergency landing and, um, and the flight, the plane landed okay, but it was very precarious. And then the next flight I was fine and the next flight after that I was fine, but over time it rattled around in my brain and I developed a, a flying phobia.
2: Mm.
1: And what has, yeah, so, so that is a fear and I also claustrophobic. So that's sort of combination. It's a terrible combination of
0: oh, yeah.
1: being claustrophobic and you know, I don't like yeah, being like in a, a little in a,
0: toothpaste a, a, a little, in a
1: tube. Yeah. And also don't, you know, I've had a bad experience flying. So what has helped me the most is, um, what the same thing we talk about with anxiety is sort of rational emotive behavioral therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy where you walk through what you're about ready to do, and you rationally realize how safe it is.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, for example, here's the statistics. I could fly every day randomly picking an airline and I wouldn't have a crash for 10,000 years.
0: You know, it's so funny that you say that because I was just, um, I just was out with a friend, Ken Howery, founder of uh, one of the co-founders of PayPal. And he was actually joking that an amazing Create way that he makes a decision on risks is he looks at, okay, if I'm going to go river rafting, how many people out of the past hundred thousand have died from doing this? Yeah. <laughs> and then he calculates, okay, I need to go on X amount of river rafts until I die, but I have X amount of years left in my life. So I need, there's not even enough years for me to get on that many river rafts. So I'm going to go, that's to,
1: you know, it's very similar, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, I could fly every single day and I wouldn't have a crash for 10,000 years. So, you know, that, that sort of rationally. And then. The other thing I do now is when I get on a plane I immediately meditate. I sit down, I I you know I can't get in lotus position but I straighten my back, I straighten my spine, I breathe deeply and I have this um this monitor of your temperature your skin temperature this little thing you hold that shows your temperature well when you're when you're scared your temperature and your hands you know, your hands are cold mm-hmm. so if you hold on to one of these sensors your temperature could be like 75 degrees on your fingers your mm-hmm. thumb and your and your index finger well if i meditate and concentrate and i think of um, pumping blood through my heart my temperature can go up about 18 or 20 degrees wow. in my fingers wow. so And I do this all the time. It's like a funny parlor trick even you can do. It's kind of cool to sit there and meditate and watch your temperature and your fingers go up as you relax more and your blood starts flowing through your body. So I take this little thing out and I start breathing deeply and I clear my mind. I don't worry about the fact that I'm in a plane. I just start breathing. And then I I look down every once in a while and the temperature keeps rising. And I will realize, wow, 45 minutes just went by on the plane and I wasn't scared. Wow. So I think meditating helps me. And also just lastly, besides that, rationalizing it, just sort of realizing that you have no control over the situation. So ruminating on it, it doesn't do any good. You might as you just got to let go. You know, it's like the old Buddhist. You just got to let go.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of people I was talking to a group uh, at a speaking engagement and I was saying powerlessness is actually really powerful because you surrender. That's all you can do.
1: And that's it. And that's in it. And that, thats exactly what I do when I got on the plane. Is I immediately surrender and realize I have absolutely no control. Not that we have control over anything, but you know, you just certainly don't have control yeah. when, when you're in a plane. Yeah. And that—and that does—and that—that does, that thought does—that thought does help me.
0: Isn't that the biggest lie we all buy into—that we have control over anything at all?
1: <laughs> Jokes yeah, on is.
0: us. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, shout out to anybody that catches you, Carter, on an airplane trying to make your way into your lotus position, even though you won't. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: And you know what? I fly all the time. I know.
0: I know. I obviously, I
1: I wouldn't say I've conquered it, but I've certainly beaten it back to the point where it doesn't, it's not debilitating. Yes. But it is a fear. You know, it is something that I'm cognizant of that it's ridiculous because I drive all over town and that's more dangerous than flying.
0: A hundred percent. Yeah. Statistically. Well, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? What is the most wise, inspiring information that's activated you?
1: Um you know, one of the things that I think is really powerful is this phrase that I've coined which is um don't worry about what people think of you because they're not thinking of you. I love that. You know, you're we worry about what we're projecting and how am I being am I being judged and am I worthy and am I doing enough? Am I enough? What do they think of me? And when you, you know, at least for me, as I've gotten older, I realized that, you know, people have their own, they're the protagonist in their own play. They're worried about their own life. They're, They're not worried about me and they're not judging me. And so when I say that line to students, don't worry about what people think of you because they aren't thinking of you, that sounds jaded, but I don't mean it to be. I think it actually should be empowering because the truth is, if you realize that, It frees you up to do what you love to do or what you think is important to do without worrying about judgment.
0: Yeah, amazing. It's so true. So many of us, I, my mom has told me that ever since I was a little kid. Ashley, nobody's watching. And I think I heard it all too well because now I'm totally weaving, waving my freak flag
1: I'm completely. Well, awesome. Freaked. I love that about you. I yes. think that's so true. I think that's Thanks just, sure. you're, you're, yeah, you, you are so empowered to do what you want to do. And I was shackled earlier. I was so, yeah. you know, I have to be a corporate you know, CEO. I was so on this path and the path wasn't authentically me. And so, you know, realizing that I was doing this for the wrong reason. Yes. Uh, you know, once I got off the, um, uh, you know, once I got off that conveyor belt, I, I realized, uh, nobody cared that I was doing it anyway.
0: Yeah.
1: That was my own projection. Yeah.
0: And what is your advice for, it's the person who, and you, if you're a listener now, it's the person who says, I just need to get this on my LinkedIn profile, or I just need to put this on my resume. What is your thought on people who are approaching their career with that approach?
1: Well, I understand how, you know, we, we want to project our best self in these channels. So I'm not, certainly not judging it. But what I would say is, if you do that which you love, if you work on something that you have real, that motivates you, it's a source of your energy, it's aligned with your sense of mission or purpose. Um, it, you know, you feel you, know, you feel like you're in that state of flow, and it's just you're you're in you're you're happy. Then you're gonna do really well. Great. So you know, I think all of the trappings and putting, you know, trying to position ourselves. And I should do this for a year to get this experience. I think if you uncover the thing that actually absorbs you and that you're that you really kind of lose that sense of time when, when you're absorbed in an activity, if you can find a career that's aligned with your motives and your values and makes you feel like you're a better you in doing it then you're going to do well, period. So
0: Yeah, and I think that's, it's, it's a fine line, isn't it, between doing what you think is going to be in service to the biggest vision you have versus really loving what you're doing and not doing anything just for the sake of having it to put on a piece of paper like a resume.
1: Yeah, I mean, I realize that and uh, that it's, it's definitely smart. If you read Cal Newport's book, um, So Good They Can't Ignore You, yeah. He are, he, it's a great book. He argues that don't try to find your purpose. Get good at something so you have career capital and then work on those. Then with that career capital and that leverage, you can work your way into doing something you love doing.
0: Amazing. I love And that it's advice. a
1: great, it's a great perspective. So I, so good they can't ignore you is not his phrase. He lifted that phrase from Steve Martin. And Steve Martin in his book, Born Standing Up, Steve Martin said, when people ask me, how did you make it as a comic? I said, I tried to get so good. They get so good. They can't ignore you.
0: It's like the quote talking about work in silence and success makes noise.
1: Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I love that. And I also, I I question it too, right? Because it's like, yeah, let's master something and get good at it. But how much of our lives are we going to put into mastering something and getting good at it until we let ourselves follow what feels good as well? So I guess
1: there's probably a middle ground. One way I've thought about that one is if you do the old, you know, this is um, Anders Ericsson's research that then, and he wrote a book called Peak, his research on deliberate practice that then was... Used by Malcolm Gladwell to write outliers. Then, and Malcolm Gladwell popularized his work, which is the 10,000 hours yes. rule. Yes. Right? So, you know, 10,000 10, hours of deliberate practice leads to this sort of competency. Yes. And so if you look, if you do the math on that, that's like five, six years of work. Yeah. So if you work of, you know, if you work with, with deliberate, deliberately and diligently, you can get to have this competency and call it five, six, seven years. It's not like you have to do something 20 years, but I do think it does make a lot of sense to try to try to determine an area that you can develop a very specific expertise and be committed to it enough that you have um, career leverage and also Um, you know, something to fall back on.
0: Yeah. Career success, I think a lot of the time is like a foundation and you can make an easier sidestep into anything you want to do when you show your track record of success. And I've found that with so many people. Here's one question. My final question for you, Carter, because you've just been full of value. Usually I'm joking around, but you just got so much wisdom. I would love to ask you, what should I be asking you that I'm not asking you?
1: Um. You know, this is going to sound almost probably, uh, a little bit odd, but what have you, what have you learned from your failures?
0: Yeah. Well, what have you learned?
1: Um, one is I've learned that you're defined by your bounce back. Mm -hmm. You're defined. We all, I think most of us fall on our face. I certainly have in a huge way. And the bounce back is what is important that you, you know, that you show that you have resilience and that you have pride and that you, you learn from it and that you're going to fall, but you're always going to get up and you're going to keep trying. And I think that bounce, that resilience and that bounce back is, is really, really important. Also in my, in my failures, I I think I've learned, I think I've finally learned, you know, what I don't know, what I call probably real humility where I'm right-sized. You know, I know, uh, I know where I have some skills and some talents and I also know where I have some tremendous vulnerabilities. And I think the failures have made me see myself more clearly, not in a way that makes me think I'm limited, but in a way that makes me feel very human and connected more to other people Mm -hmm. because I realize how vulnerable I am as a human. And it makes me feel more, uh, empathetic towards other people and their vulnerabilities too. Mm.
2: Mm.
0: I love that. Thank you so much, Carter, for being here. Everybody who hasn't already gotten a copy of the right and wrong stuff, you've got to check it out by Carter cast. Thanks for being on with us, Carter. I really, really appreciate you so much.
1: Oh, well, thank you. I love being on it.
0: All right. So I am just reflecting here. Um, this is Ashley Stahl thinking about the episode with Carter Cast, former CEO of Walmart and professor um, for MBA students at Northwestern School of Business in Chicago. And let me tell you, I mean, how can you not love a charming, wise, successful, smart leader who says that their power quotient is 7%? I mean, how do you not love someone who isn't power hungry in some way um, it's just such a beautiful thing. And you could, I'm sure you could tell, as I could, that Carter is really just here to serve. And I think he shows that through being a teacher. And his book, The Right and Wrong Stuff, is just such a beautiful read for your career. But what I found most interesting and what my favorite thing that he said in this episode is to turn your no into a five-minute favor. I love this because so often we are caught on the spot when it comes to an opportunity that we want to say no to, but we're not really sure how to. And so what I figured I could talk to you about now is how to say no, how to stand in your no, Uh, because, you know, Carter and I covered a lot of ground, and I think that being able to say no is probably one of the most powerful gifts you can give yourself. It's something that I really suffered through back when I worked in counterterrorism, I was the yes person because there were world issues at play and there were terror attacks and so many things that it was extra hard to say no because it kind of felt like lives were in my hands um, on some level. And I felt the weight of that. But what I want to remind you is kind of what Carter talked about is when you say no to something, you're saying yes to something else. That really is how time works. There's only so many moments in the day and you only have so much energy to bring to the table. And so one of the most important things I want to invite you to do right now is to take a look at where are you saying yes in your life that actually feels like a no inside of you. So just ask yourself, where are you putting your time? Who are you hanging out with? What jobs are you doing or not doing? Or what fitness are you forcing yourself to do that actually just is not a yes at all? And then the deeper question is, why are you doing it? Is it because you think you should be doing it? I think there's some quote, and I and I, and I can't recall who was, but it said, stop shitting all over yourself. <laughs> And it's so true, we spend so much of our lives doing a bunch of shoulds that when we look at our calendars or our evenings, it's like we look back on our day, and I think there's nothing more heartbreaking than realizing and much like we talked about in the episode with Coot Blackson that death is in death, death is in is going to come, and um it's inevitable, and it's so important to be in touch with your death so that you can really get even more in touch with your life and the intentionality behind your decisions so the first thing I want to remind you is that no is a complete sentence. You uh, it, Please notice if you find yourself having to explain yourself when you say no. A lot of the times, that's just a social construct, and it's something that a lot of us have bought into is the belief that we need to explain ourselves when we say no, when really... We don't. Um, and and it, it does feel kind of funny because it's so against the grain of what we're conditioned to do, to explain, to feel guilty, and all of those sorts of pieces of society. But it's so, so, so key to really connect with your no and to really stand in it and own it. Because when you do that, you are creating space for so many yeses. And the way that I roll pretty much everything I do, especially career-wise, is a hell yes. And if it's not, it's just a no. And The best gift that I've given myself is spaciousness in my calendar. And what I love the most also is how real of a person this can make you and how much deeper your connections in your life can become. So the first thing, don't think you need to explain yourself. No means no. The second thing, if it's not a hell yes, it's, it's a no. And the third thing is to look at what do you want to spend your time doing? What feels like such a yes to you if you start to say no more often? Uh, and the fourth thing is to consider the kind of person you're being when you say a yes and it's actually a no. And here's what I mean. There's a couple, I have, um, you know, I, I love, I live in Los Angeles. I travel a lot, but I will say that I have friends from, Middle school, preschool, high school, college, and then I have a business group of friends here in L.A., and what I've learned is that there's a couple friends from my past where I would go to dinner with them, but it felt like a should, and my mom would say, oh, that's so great you're seeing her, and I would say, yeah, it just feels like my, it just feels tiring to go, though, and my mom would say, well, yeah, but you guys have been friends for 15 years, it's the least you can do. And what I realized in that was, and that's her belief, you know, and God bless mom, mom, I love you. If you're listening, you are a wise woman. Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. (laughs) But what I realized for myself was that, number one, the lowest way to love myself is to go spend time with people I don't want to spend time with people that who I don't want to spend time with. So I realize I'm not loving myself. I'm not caring about myself, and it's kind of like forcing a little kid, dragging a little kid with you to go to the grocery store. It's like, well, they don't want to go. And yes, it's life, and sometimes you have to do things. But you don't. Friendship is a pleasure. It's a gift. It's connection. And if you're not finding it in certain friendships, then what I realized is that one of the fakest, most inauthentic things you could do. Is is show up at the dinner table using someone else's time when you don't want to be there. And one of the highest acts of love, alternatively, is setting somebody free to go use the spaciousness of their life to be with people who want to be with them. In in a sense, when you say no to someone else or you make yourself busy and say, I'm so sorry, I'm not available, what you're doing is you're loving them enough to respect their time and you're loving you enough to love your day-to-day and to love your moments. And the more you can connect to your no, the more you are able to then make space for what feels like a yes. And I think so often we're so used to, um, you know, saying yes to things that we don't want to do, that our life is just full of so much disconnect. And so really shifting this is a transformative way to live. I want to offer it up to you, uh, and just, you know, offer you, I used to be a one-way ticket on the yes train and I would say yes to everyone who wanted to Pick my brain because I love people. I'd be like, yes. And then I realized I didn't have time for my clients if everybody's picking my brain. Or um, I would be a yes person when it came to staying extra late at work, which is a really great thing. But then it gets to a point, you know, I remember back when I was in the corporate world where – Everything in my life slips. So ask yourself, where are you, what Carter calls at work, the whirling dervish, where you say yes to everything and you're swimming? Where are you the sacrificial lamb to yourself where you're saying yes to dinners that you don't want to be at? Because that is just an opportunity for you to call your realist self forward, to stop buying into the inauthenticity that comes with sitting down to someone and to realize it is a true act of kindness to say no because other people deserve to spend their time in a way that the other people that they're with want to be there with them so with that said i could go on forever i love carter Cass, what an amazing guy and somebody i'm so grateful to be friends with um, thank you so much for tuning in and i can't wait to connect with you next week Thanks again for tuning into this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. You can find all of the resources that our guest mentioned on our show notes at U-TurnPodcast.com. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N Podcast.com. Also, don't forget, on the website, we've got our four free e-courses, whether you want to land a new job you love, get clarity on the best career path for you, launch your dream business, or deepen your romantic relationships. I'll talk to you soon. Can't wait to connect on next week's episode.